Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. British Columbia continues to have the country's best-performing economy. Yesterday's release of quarterly provincial government revenue and spending figures suggests that the BC NDP continue to manage this prosperity without any particular stress on the system, at least not yet. That being said, of course, there are challenges for this government in meeting its commitments on housing, on childcare, transportation, and in fixing the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, ICBC. Mario Canseco, the president of the public research firm Research Co., has been examining British Columbians' view on the economy. He joins me now. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Um, didn't get a deficit yesterday. No. Didn't, didn't indicate a deficit. A little bit of a, well, maybe not a whole surprise, but somewhat of a surprise. By the way, do, do British Columbians care much about deficits? Not really. I think we saw this going back to the federal election back in 2015. Mm. You know, we saw Justin Trudeau running on we're going to spend money. We know we need uh, to do things differently than what we had before under Stephen Harper. Uh, the idea of the deficit as this, you know, rest on debt for everything related to specific policies was more of a BC liberal thing. Christy Clark definitely championed it. Uh, but it's a situation where a lot of people were worried about what the NDP would do to the finances of BC. And we see yeah. that the situation is roughly the same as it was two, three years ago. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that worry, about that apprehension. Um, how significant was that? In, uh, in keeping people, first of all, from voting for the NDP last time? Well, I think that is one of the reasons for the results to be as close as they were. I think we had a couple of forces that were fighting each other. One was uh, the fact that you had people who had voted for the BC Liberals before who weren't ready for the BC NDP to essentially take over again, uh, who were disappointed with the way the situation went in BC in the 1990s. But we also had the other force, which was a lot of people who were dissatisfied with the leadership style of a uh, Christy Clark, mm-hmm. uh, a situation where you had to choose between one of those two issues. And I think that's why we had a result that was as, as uh, close as it was because of those two forces. Because wasn't the Liberals' real card in the last election, the fact that we'd had this uh, this string of prosperous years of the fastest growing economy in the country, and then the strongest economy, the resilient one, getting even through the last uh, economic downturn. Uh, so what happens here, Mario, if the NDP begin to appear to be decent economic stewards? I think it's definitely detrimental for the chances of the BC Liberals. I think they were expecting the NDP to not run a good financial show, uh, to be in a situation where we, where we would have deficits, where uh, the services were, were not going to be what they used to, uh, and also uh, a little bit of hesitation on, on what the housing market was going to bring. And we see a scenario where the housing taxes are definitely popular with many residents. The market is slowly trying to come back. Uh, so you're running out of options if you're the BC Liberals to criticize what the NDP has been doing financially, which used to be one of the issues where they always dominated. One area, of course, that still remains uh, quite a sticking point for them is uh, you know, the, what David Eby describes as the dumpster fire, <laughs> the yes. ICBC situation, where really you were talking about uh, perhaps uh, – billions of dollars out there that appear to be liabilities and in they're trying to reform the system um, again this is one of these things that pinches people in the pocketbook awfully quickly when you go to renew your insurance how important is it for the NDP to manage this transition to a, a break-even ICBC without really attacking uh, <laughs> our, our well-being as drivers Well, that is going to be one of the most difficult circumstances that they face, uh, particularly because there is a lot of appetite uh, 
from specific sectors of BC's population to try to open this up, to let it be private, to yeah. allow other companies to participate and to bid on these services. It started in a few services, but not as much as what we see in other parts of Canada. And this is definitely controversial. You know, we don't see a situation here where a lot of people are defending the system as it exists. No. It's not going to be seen as, you know, you cannot take this from ICBC and then allow anybody to really come in here because there's always this situation where somebody's going to be disgusted at the way things are going. Now, when you alter the way in which the system works, there's bound to be a situation where somebody was paying uh, very little money and now is paying a lot of money. And those are the cases that we remember because those are the cases that have been covered extensively by the media. So That's right. Uh, you know, yes, we're, we're guilty of that. I, yeah. I, I will agree. But, but in terms of attitudes about ICBC or about uh, vehicle insurance in general, as you examine it, is it a generational? Uh, is it generationally divided? You know, are older drivers of the view that they ought to be left alone, left, you know, they're, they're safe people and, and that uh, millennials need to, you know, are, are upset that they're getting dinged so quickly? It would, how does it break down? It's a... Uh it's essentially a great time to be a Generation Xer. Uh, you're not going to be <laughs> complaining a lot about the way things are going. Uh, the new drivers are saying that they're safe, but they're getting dinged. Uh, the older drivers are saying that every year they pay more and they shouldn't. Uh, there's always the opportunity to look at how other jurisdictions handle this. And I think there's a sense here from those who have been driving the longest that the rates should be coming down, that they shouldn't be essentially pinpointed as the ones who are causing some of the accidents. Uh, but in a strange way, even non-drivers have a nasty view of ICBC. I think it has supplanted <laughs> what used to be TransLink at, and uh, also BC Ferries a few years ago as the one corporation that everybody loves to hate. So how hazardous politically is this for the NDP as it tries to manage the transition? Well, I think the key here is it's easier to do this as a BC liberal because you can always say at the end of the day that you saved the people money. We saved taxpayers money by essentially privatizing, doing something different. The way the NDP works is it's always about the services. Mm -hmm. So you're spending a lot of money. There's a deficit. There's a problem there. It's a dumpster fire, as, uh, as it has been said before. Um, but it's not an easy solution for you unless you have something to show for all of the motorists who are paying a lot of money for their in, in, in insurance. Um, I think that's the biggest uh, issue here. You, I don't see this situation as maybe two years from now having this grandiose press conference and the NDP saying that they actually saved taxpayer money. It, it goes against what their base wants to see. It's been intriguing to see how the NDP government has dealt with organized labor. Uh, the teachers are uh, in a real tizzy about this. Of course, they've been without a contract since June. We've had a transit strike that was settled. Of course, it's a private sector union, but uh, nevertheless, it was settled without the NDP having to come in and intervene and appoint a mediator. That being said, uh, there is also the, the prospect of a forestry sector that is, that is in deep trouble right now. It's different to assist an industry as opposed to labor in all of this. Again, I'm looking for signs here about what the NDP has to think through as, uh, as it manages the economy in lending assistance to an industry as opposed to basically improving the well-being of the workers. Well, forestry was one of the lowlights of the report. You know, we don't see a situation that is as uh, buoyant as it was 
maybe 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a difficulty there, partly because of the situation with the United States and the disputes over softwood lumber that have been lingering for decades, uh, especially now with Donald Trump. Uh, you never know if two weeks from now he'll say we're only going to use American wood. He might. Uh, so that also adds another a, a layer of, of, of uncertainty to this whole matter. Um, but it's an important one because these are areas that don't necessarily vote for the NDP. The no. places where you have all of those people working in the mills, uh, but it would be an opportunity for them to engage and to try to change the way in which people there feel about the NDP government. You can't just wait three years and expect the BC Liberals, if they were to win the next election, uh, to solve it for no, you. No, within so three years, there will be uh, quite a catastrophe in the sector. And yet the NDP has not been a party, typically speaking, that has uh, reached out to industry and lent a, a big helping hand in this case. How important might it be this time in its term to, to identify forestry as the sector in which it, it has to wage a rescue mission? Well, it is ex extremely important for them, uh, especially if they want to shake the idea that they're a fundamentally urban party. You know, we see a situation where the housing mm -hmm. uh, crisis continues, but the way in which people feel about the the uh, BC government handling it has definitely shifted. Uh, there's high level of support for the taxes that were brought in. Uh, so they're, they're reconnecting with the base that voted for them, but they haven't really been able to expand that base beyond Vancouver Island, Metro Vancouver. You do something on the, for on the forestry sector, you're bound to have a lot of people who look at you differently before the next election, and that could turn the map a little more orange than it was the last time around. Um, around, uh, at her, her press conference yesterday, uh, around uh, some of these quarterly numbers, it didn't really come up very much, but I have the sense that the NDP have to at some point be willing to press a bit of a pause or a slow button on some of the initiatives that it's going to look at in terms of its uh, overall agenda on social issues, particularly childcare. Absolutely. Um, maybe even housing, but particularly childcare. Uh, how soon might we expect a little bit more clarity about whether there's anything going on there? Is it going to be another quarterly? Is it the next budget? What, what would you expect here? I think it'll take another six months to try to figure this out. You know, part of the problem here is you need to deal with different ministries to handle this. And education is going to be overwhelmed with the discussions about labor strife. So you can have a situation now where uh, Ralph Fleming is going to be working on this file more than others um, because it's difficult to get it done. I think the the idea, the notion of a $10 a day childcare definitely makes sense, but it's not something that can be implemented as quickly as a lot of people expect. No. Uh, what we saw happening in Quebec took uh, years to be at, at the same yeah, it's, situation it's, that it has right now. It's not as if we have uh, a brigade of childcare workers and a pile of facilities that are all ready to be opened and running, right? The, this is a little bit like the housing sector. It takes quite a bit of time. And in this case here, you're requiring some people to be trained, educated, and quite sophisticated in providing these services. That being said, it's pretty crucial as a, as a staple in the NDP agenda for the economy by next election, uh, can the NDP afford to really not be seen to be progressing very quickly toward some kind of implementation? It, it has to be done quickly. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I think they definitely need to do is to not turn this into an urban versus rural issue. 
If you start to roll out $10 a day childcare only in the major urban <laughs> centers, everybody's going to be upset because everybody wants to work. We've seen that one of the things that it did in Quebec is allow women to come back into the workforce quicker. So yes. that is the essence of the argument here. You should not see this as something that is going to be helping the kids. Of, of course, it will, but it's also something that helps the workforce. You if you if they handle this correctly and not roll this out only in the areas where they, a lot of people vote for them anyway, um, this could come back to haunt them. I, I should have asked uh, what kind of support a program like this has in the province. I mean, what, what does your research tell you? It's uh, overwhelmingly high. You know, we yeah. I, I conducted surveys uh, three times for the Ten a Day uh, Child Care Foundation, and and you know everybody wants to see this happening. It's interesting in the sense that the ones who know what the struggle is more than others are the ones who just went through this process. If you were somebody who had to find alternative uh, a, you know, ways to, for somebody to, to be looking after your child, mm-hmm. if you had to be on a waiting list for more than six months, maybe sometimes a year, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the two parents had to stay home to take care of the child. I mean, those are the ones who say, yes, do this. You know, I don't want anybody else to go through the same problems that I went through. And, you know, the more we keep going, more people are added to that list that say we should be having this in place uh, because it's necessary for everybody who wants to start a family. That being said, it's going to cost the Treasury, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, and and I think that is one of the biggest issues here. You know, you have a surplus and there's always opinions on how to spend it. Uh, You know, do you do some infrastructure? Do you do other things? Um, what is the kind of thing that you want to see happening here? But, you know, we need to uh, face up to the fact that we are one of the provinces where most immigrants relocate, Mm -hmm. sometimes young families. You know, this isn't a problem that the people in Quebec have. Uh, And also their uh, fertility rate is the lowest in the country. So once you have that in place, it's a little bit easier. Taking the the model in Quebec, bringing it to BC with so many immigrants and so many young families is not going to be that simple. Um, Around its housing agenda. Uh, I, you know, I continue to hear uh, province talking about the necessity for the federal government to get involved, be involved, stay involved, that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, at a municipal level uh, in the city, we we hear our mayor and council talk about the necessity for senior levels of government to do this. Well, uh, again, it's an expensive initiative. Um, it takes time. Is this something that the NDP can afford at all to push back? I think it's a tough one. You know, I think what they've done certainly has generated a lot of goodwill towards them. Uh, the animosity towards the new housing taxes was short-lived. Uh, people find them as something that needs to happen. As and rather isolated. And isolated. And isolated. But, yeah. you know, I think that is also part of the problem. You know, I, I measure representative samples. You know, having 10 people screaming outside of the door of an MLA is not a representative sample. But, you know, it, it's it's that type of situation that we saw in the early stages of this quote-unquote revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, what I see here is a situation where the Liberal Party at the federal level is fundamentally urban. You know, they lost a lot of the seats that they had here. They kept some of the seats that they had within the cities. This is where the problem is as far as the housing issues. Uh, but it's going to be difficult within a minority government. Uh, you want to cut big ribbons. And this is usually infrastructure. It's not housing for people who want to rent. So federal government is not going to be as, as interested in this as the municipal governments will be. Well, ribbon cutting is not as expensive as shovels <laughs> in the ground and skyscrapers in the sky. Um, I want to uh, close with a little bit of a personal look and a professional look, obviously, at Carol James. 
I think a number of years ago, people thought perhaps she might be a spent force. She'd, she'd had a, a pretty challenging leadership um, period in, in uh, the NDP. Um, she appeared to be, you know, you know another uh, MLA who was in opposition, rather effective, but not necessarily the front-ranked person and not necessarily the kind of uh, transitional uh, person in, in the party that, uh, that there was going to be perhaps the next generation of leadership. And she was, you know, past the, the best before date kind of thing. Uh, that doesn't appear to be the case now. Um, she she is earning accolades and I think hasn't been actually attacked by the BC Liberals in any measure because they know how popular she has become. Give me your assessment. What kind of what kind of finance minister has she been? I think she's been very, very good, very effective. I think uh, it's a very difficult situation coming in uh, with a lot of criticism from the liberals as far as what is going to happen with the surplus. Are you going to have deficits? Can you spend money wisely? And we see that she's become one of those leaders when it comes to handling finances. Uh, very tough situation. To, in the 2005 election, they got a lot of seats back, which is expected after the blowout that we saw back in 2001. But I think there was an expectation by the middle of 2008 that they could actually defeat Gordon Campbell. It didn't materialize. Uh, but I think it's also important to note that you know John Horgan, who is now premier, is able to work with the two leaders that were there before him, Adrian Dix in health, Carol James in finance. Uh, that's not something that you see every day when it comes to political parties, especially those from the center-left. No, usually parties put their ex-leaders somewhat on the scrap heap. I mean, in this case here, she's not. Uh, how important has it been for her to also be able to stand up to labor, uh, stand up to those that are looking for speedy social agenda action, uh, in order to basically keep, you know, keep the balance sheet uh, looking pretty impressive. Well, it has worked very well so far. You know, we we have certain pockets of labor strife, but it's not something that is generalized across the entire province. Uh, there's different places that have different needs. We saw it in the island with the uh, strike that we saw from some of the teachers' unions. Uh, it's difficult to do this, but it's a little bit easier for her because she's worked with these people all her life. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she was the one who was talking to them about what was going to happen under an NDP government in the early years of this century. And yet their, their expectations might have been pretty high, right, after 16 years in opposition, that they were going to somehow have, you know, the vault released for them. Well, and I think there's also a lot of nuance to those discussions. You know, you have to be the one to, to say, well, now that we're in charge, we're not going to just do whatever we please. And mm-hmm. that is definitely part of the art of governing. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just say, well, this is the way we're going to be doing things. And, you know, we've seen other jurisdictions where a center-left party comes in and they try to rearrange the furniture within the first 48 hours. And it's not the best strategy. And a lot of people end up being really mad about it. Last question. It has to do with the future. Uh, what could go wrong here to knock out all of these projections? <laughs> well, I think one of the keys here for me is uh, figuring out and reading what the public wants to see. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a situation that is quite delicate 
as far as uh, the expectations of the British Columbian, because we've seen that they're very different. You know, seniors want something, millennials want something, Generation X wants something completely different. If you want to grow the base, if you want to do what the NDP wants to do in the next election, which is to have their own majority government that is not buttressed by the Greens, they need to connect with the people who four years ago or four years before the, the next election said, there's something about this government that I don't like. And we see John Horgan's numbers definitely higher than where Andrew Wilkinson is. Um, but there's also the situation that could happen at the federal level. Minority government, Donald Trump, will he be impeached? Will he be reelected? What is going to happen with all of those issues that are not within their grasp? Uh, but ultimately, I think the key to the victory of the NDP and to continue to see this going is to see those moderate, busy liberal voters saying, I like what the NDP has done and I'm willing to give them my vote the next time. Mario Canseco, president at Research Co. Always good to have you with us. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Kirk. You've been listening to BIV Today. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening.